Holy Father, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to give himself a sacrifice for all who have sinned and fallen short. And Father, that's all of us. And Father, he called on us to have faith in him, to believe in him, to place our lives in his hands, to follow him and take up a cross. And we come this morning, Father, asking that our hearts would be turned toward him, that our souls would be honest, Father, in our reflections upon our life and our sins and how we have failed, Lord, at times, many times, to take up that cross and follow him. We pray, Lord, that you would transform our hearts, that every day, Father, we would uh, be more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ, and that, Father, we would know that true joy and true happiness comes only when we turn our lives over to you, and they are conformed to your word. Father, we pray this morning as we come around the Lord's table, not the table of this church, Father, but the table of Jesus Christ, that we would do so as one family united in our faith in him. Father, now we sing in praise that Jesus Christ went to that cross for us, and amen. Good morning, everyone. Would you please say with me the prayer for guidance? Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 12 through 7. And if you'd like to follow along in your pew Bible, it's on page 208. I am grateful to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of violence, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But for that very reason, I receive mercy, the utmost, uh, I receive mercy so that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display the utmost patience, making me an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Whenever we say thanks be to God for his word each Sunday, as we just did, um, I hope we are truly thankful for God's word. Imagine for a moment a world where we did not have the Bible. Imagine trying to figure out how to live and, and the manner in which we should live. I think most of us would captured up in our human uh, uh, fallen uh, spirit would probably, uh, most of us would tend to turn inward. We would turn into our own self-interests and doing things our own way. And yet there is a constant challenge of Jesus Christ in Scripture to be servants to take up the cross, to follow him, to serve others, to love others, and to even love our enemies. 
And so I'm thankful, truly thankful for God's word. I, I hope you are too this day as we, as we uh, go into 1 Timothy and talk a little bit about uh, what it be, means to be simple church. You see that up there? That was just something that came into my mind this week, and I, I, I looked for a picture of what represented simple church to me. Uh, children with their eyes uh, squeezed shut and their hands squeezed. And, and I wrote a little column about uh, for the newsletter about how when I was a child, the church I went to was truly a simple church. You know, it didn't have, we didn't have a choir and we didn't have a, you know, there was no stained glass and it was a very simple little building and, um, you know, we, we started out, it wasn't even really our church's building. It was, uh, in somebody's home that had a screened in porch, uh, and we all met out there, uh, when the weather was good. So I remember that simple church and I remember the basic things that church was to me, uh, because, uh, I noticed that, uh, whenever we had to put out extra chairs, uh, for the service, that seemed to get everybody really excited. And in my mind, I figured, well, it was because exci- we were excited because more people were coming to hear about Jesus. And that was the whole point of church, right? To come and to hear about Jesus and to think about Jesus. And people were coming for that. And so I got excited about that. And I, I remembered one of the things that, you know, you can read it in the newspaper, uh, newspaper, the newsletter. But one of the things that I used to do as a child, I remember I would squeeze my hands so tight and my eyes so tight shut when we prayed because I wanted God to know that I was praying to him and I wanted him to hear my prayers. This wasn't a time for me to be distracted. So I was really intense and I, and I really focused on not opening my eyes because somehow that was going to uh, tell God that I wasn't focused on him. I, I remember all these little things about church and, and how really there were just basic simple things that made church that special place. Where when we came together, it was all about Jesus Christ. And so I was thinking about that this week. I was thinking about our scripture for today and how we might look at in, in the midst of all the complexities that we have just seen in our general conference. And, and believe me, we can be a really complex church uh, as most, uh, most churches eventually evolve into. Uh, there's there's something about churches that over time we add more and more and more and more layers until perhaps it's hard for us to be simply church. Perhaps it's hard for us to see the basic gospel of Jesus Christ because we have so many traditions and customs and things that we feel we have to do. And believe me, as a pastor, so many forms and reports that have to go out of our office during the year that I was just saying, Why, can we just... Can we just get back to simple church for a little bit? Can we find those times when we can, can uh, realize that it's about loving each other as Christ has loved us? When it's about going out and serving in the name of Jesus Christ down in North Carolina? When it's about feeding people every week in the community? When it's about offering a, you know, a hot shower, uh, a place to do laundry, a place of hospitality to people who don't have uh, ready access to those things? to be simply church. I think that is the strongest power among us, to be Christ's hands in the community and for each other. And so uh, I I, I did come across one little story that I I thought was maybe reflective of the time that we live in. Do you know there are over 33,000 denominations in this world? Christian denominations, over 33,000. That's incredible. And that tells you how complicated we must make it because most divisions come about because we begin to disagree over things that really aren't the most important things. Uh, 
the uh, churches have, it's amazing uh, the controversies that have come up through the centuries that churches have split over. Uh, and our Methodist movement has not been an exception to that. But I heard this, this story about a, a ship's captain. Uh, he was a, uh, on a naval ship, and they were passing an island that on the maps was uninhabited. But he saw some smoke rising on the island. And so they let a smaller boat down into the water. He got into the boat with some others, and they, they went over to the island. And he gets over there, and there's a man there. And he has been stranded on that island for, for some years. And the captain asks him, he says, I see that you have three huts here. Why do you have three huts that you have built? And he said, well, that one over there, that's my house. That's where I live. And this one over here, that's my church. And the captain said, well, what about this third one over here? And he said, well, that's the church I used to go to. (laughs) You know, it's like leaving churches is something everybody's going to experience at some time. And uh, and sometimes it's a a, uh, painful experience to have that and to have churches... uh, uh, split and divide, and you know a lot of folks out there are predicting that that is coming down the road for the United Methodist Church. hadn't ha- happened quite yet. We're, we're st- we still have the same uh, same discipline that we had have had for the last fifty years, essentially, with changes here and there. But in terms of what the controversy is all about over human sexuality, it stayed the same for the time being. And so, uh, and there there are folks who are not happy with that. And, uh, and there are folks uh, who, who are very happy with that. And there are folks who, who are, are, in one respect, glad it remained the same, but in another respect, are very pained by all the division that is, has called, caused in the hurt. And so we're praying through that. But how do we get back to that point where, if we're willing to spend $3.5 million and bring all these folks from all around the world to deal on one specific and spend two years of thought and time and anguish and wringing our hands over one specific issue. Perhaps we're missing the point of church. And that's where I'm going to go to the scripture today and say, what was the point of church for Paul that he would, that he would uh, say what he says to Timothy? That over and over in his letters to the churches, he would emphasize this same thing as he does in this passage. He starts out by saying to Timothy, and Timothy is a young, young pastor who needs encouragement and support because some of the older folks are disparaging him because of his age and they aren't respecting him because he's a young man. And uh, he, he's trying to encourage Timothy to not let that get to him, to just go on and do the work of a pastor. And he starts out and he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Who has given me strength? Who has given him strength? Christ, Christ Jesus our Lord. That he, Christ Jesus, considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, to the service of Jesus Christ. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him 
and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As I was going through that passage and you heard my my emphasis upon Christ Jesus over and over, Paul never once says, uh, uh, raises the church up to a place over Christ Jesus in the scriptures. Now, we are to honor the church in the sense that it is the body of Christ, but it is always subservient to Jesus Christ. And I think sometimes our allegiance to the church is so strong, we love our church so much, but we place the church above Jesus Christ. And as a church, we try to figure things out without allowing Jesus Christ, the head of the church, to speak to us. That we think that the church itself on its own somehow can exist and subsist and and flourish When in reality, if you read the scriptures, everything we do comes from Jesus Christ. Everything of value, everything that is in God's will has to first come through Jesus Christ, not the will of the church. I've run into folks who uh, sometimes they, they want to be pastors, they're called to be pastors. And you talk to them and you, and you get no evidence that they really have ever uh, developed a relationship with Jesus Christ. But they have a love for the church, for his church. And we always have to go back to them when you're talking to them and say, tell me again about your relationship with Jesus Christ. And they struggle with that. And some of what I think happens in the church sometimes, if you look at our, some of our curriculum, uh, when we have young people who are going through confirmation class, You'll have a week where you talk about the liturgical year, the Christian year, and you'll talk about the colors for every section, and you'll talk about all the traditions. You'll talk about the history of the church. You'll talk about so many things, and then there might be at the end a lesson that talks about Jesus Christ. I've seen, Now, not all curriculums are the same, but I've seen some that barely mention Jesus Christ. Because for those curriculums, what they're trying to do is bring these young people firmly into the church. But many of those young people have never brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So we have flipped the relationships there. First and foremost, we have to have that relationship with Jesus Christ, and our young people have to come to know it. And it's, it's sad when you're asking somebody, what does it mean to you that Jesus Christ is your Savior, and they can't express it in any way. You know, simply to say that he died on the cross for my sins, that he has saved me. And so many people don't, don't really have a sense that they have understood that, but they can tell you all sorts of things about the church and the church's life and traditions. And so getting back to Jesus Christ and who he is, now is is so important, but if we're going to do that, and in the short amount of time that I have uh, this morning, I wanted to share just a couple of things with you. Uh, One is something I came across on the internet, a wonderful place to come across things. Um, And uh, I'm afraid I'm going to read that to you, which I, I, I usually in sermons I don't, read long things because I realize how boring it is for somebody to stand there reading to you. But I thought this was such a concise and clear summary of who Jesus is. Because, folks, the first thing we have to discover is, who is Jesus? Uh, Back when I was a teenager, you know, 16, 17, 18 in there, y'all remember the Jesus movement? Do you know that about three years before Time Magazine ran an article on the Jesus Movement, they had run another article, and it was the one that very famously on the front cover of Time, it said, God is dead. 
And the article was about how religion was dying and the church was dying in America. And that people had ceased to believe that there was a God. Three years later, they run a front cover of the magazine, a picture of these young people with buttons that say, uh, Jesus is a soul man. (laughs) You know, I believe in Jesus. I love Jesus. They run this cover, and then they run a story inside, and they talk about how the youth of America have suddenly turned to Jesus Christ in a way that hasn't been seen in this nation in a long, long time. And some people would say that since that period of time, maybe about eight years or so in the 60s and into the 70s when that Jesus movement uh, was so strong, that we really haven't had a revival in this country. We haven't had a movement of the Spirit to, to spread the gospel across the land as strong as that one was. And I'll tell you, this is my theory. So you can give it about two cents in value, perhaps. But my theory on what happened to the Jesus movement was it was co-opted. And I, I lived it and I saw it. I saw what the church did. When, when it first began to get any sort of books or read anything about Jesus... I had to travel from Woodbridge all the way up into Maryland to a little uh, bookstore called The Vine and the Fig Fig Tree. And uh, I remember going into that. And it was dusty, and they had all these uh, books by by Stott and C.S. Lewis, and I would buy the books, and I would read them. I'd go up there with my friend uh, Dave Nixon sometimes, and we'd, we'd buy books, and we'd read about Jesus. Years later, not too many years later, I noticed Christian bookstores and chains opening up all over the country. And I noticed on TV suddenly there were, there were Christian stations. And again, I think with good intentions. And churches began to adopt the Jesus movement folks into their churches. But if you're going to be adopted into our churches, you have to be a little bit churchy. You have to conform a bit. And over time, what I saw, and this is a controversial statement, that basically the Jesus movement was bought out by churches that wanted to grow. And they saw the growth in these young people, and they said, why don't we bring that into our churches? And over time, a lot of church became business. And church became so focused on growth rather than on Jesus Christ, who Jesus Christ knew what it was to operate with just a few A few men following him and a few women following him. He knew what it was to to have people desert him. But suddenly the church, we worshipped growth and numbers. And so we lost that sense that the Jesus movement had that the focus should be on Jesus. Instead, we turned the focus around upon ourselves. Now this is, again, in the interest of time this morning. This is what I came across because what I have also heard, especially in the discussion on the last two years in our United Methodist Church, is a disagreement as to who Jesus is. I've heard over and over people say Jesus is all about bringing everybody into the fold. I've heard people say Jesus is all about diversity. He loved all kinds of people. I've heard a lot of things said about Jesus that really don't match up with the Jesus in the Gospels. 
Now, if everybody, if Jesus had known that everybody was going to accept him, I know he would have been overjoyed, but he seemed to know that wasn't going to happen. Uh, Jesus also didn't allow uh, uh, cultural lines and, uh, and lines between people to consume him, even though there are a couple of instances where he hesitated with folks because they weren't Jewish. Because he said he had first come to that nation of people. And then later, the kingdom would expand beyond that. But Jesus Christ, in the scriptures, this was a summary that somebody wrote up, and I thought it was, was excellent. He said, Jesus was in the mode of the prophets, and the prophets were never ones to soft-pedal compromise or be vague. Any analysis of Jesus' true message, not the selective and filtered modern version of that message, shows that he made expansive uncompromising demands on any who would be his disciples. They must repent and believe his gospel. It's not simply a thing of bringing people into church membership, regardless of of what they believe, regardless of how they live their lives. But Jesus in the gospels asks people to repent of their sins and to believe his gospel as a condition for following him. We must clearly accept that he is the only light, the only truth, and the only son to the Father, as we read in the Gospel of John. We are to love no one and nothing more than we love him. Remember the times when people would say, he'd say, come and follow me, and they'd say, wait a minute, I need to go bury my father? Now that seems like, you know, that seems like a very reasonable request, doesn't it? And Jesus says, no, let the dead bury the dead, you come and follow me. That seems tough. That seems a lot tougher than the Jesus who so often we describe as, well, Jesus was all about love and acceptance. But if we go through the Gospels, very often Jesus is focused upon people turning their lives over to God and following him, regardless of what it means in their relationships with those who are closest to them. This includes our very family as well as the things most essential to our physical survival, such as career and livelihood. If we do not do this, then we are not worthy of him. We must take up our cross daily. We must be willing to suffer even unto death for him and what he teaches. It is not enough to love our neighbor. We must love our enemy. It is not enough to avoid adultery. We must have a comprehensive sexual purity that excludes all forms of sexual activity outside of of biblical marriage, even impure thoughts. Jesus said, you know, you've heard, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. I tell you, if you so much as think about to lust after a woman, you have already done that. I mean, Jesus is tough. We must forgive others who have hurt us, or else the Father will not forgive us. Time and time again, the real Jesus warned of hell and the necessity to be sober and serious about judgment. In fact, Jesus spoke about hell more than any other person in Scripture. Jesus was not some angry preacher. Jesus, who loves us, uh, uh, warned that many would be unable and unwilling to enter heaven on its terms. Few would take the narrow road of the cross. Few there are that find it, he said. Not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter heaven, but only those who do the will of the Father. Many will hear from him, I know you not, I know not from whence you came. Depart from me. With Jesus, there's no compromise, no third way. We cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve God and money. A friend of the world is an enemy to God. He would say that no one who sets his hand to the plow and keeps looking back is fit for the reign of God. 
To our excuses and pleas for time and getting our act together, he might say, let the dead bury the dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom. Now, this goes on for a while, mapping out for us, describing the Jesus that we do read about in the scriptures. I was thinking specifically about that rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, "Uh, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And so often, uh, when, when the rich young ruler, it says, he goes away sorrowful because he had a lot of stuff. He was wealthy and it was too much to ask him to give those things up. And I think in the comfort of our lives, we read that and we say, wow, that rich young ruler, what a fool. He gave up following Jesus for his wealth and riches. But how many of us, If Jesus Christ entered this room today, this sanctuary today, if Jesus Christ said to all of us, I want you to go and sell everything, your car, your house, get rid of your bank accounts, everything, and hand it over to the poor. Or or said to our church, I want you to sell your building and your property, and I want you to give it all to the poor. How many of us would do that? How many of us would do that? Or how many of us would turn around and desert Jesus at that moment? You see, that's a tough question for today. While we are so focused on, on what for many people is not a, a, uh, a, a topic of, of uh, uh, that, a topic that really is close to home for us. And for other people, it's very close to home for us. For them, while we're discussing that topic, at the same time, we're ignoring Jesus in so many ways. And so we get deflected from the real call of Jesus in our lives. And so when I say a simple church, it's not really that simple, is it? But it is simple if we, if we just focus upon Jesus and lay aside all these other things that we're always so concerned about in the church. And we'll let petty arguments and disagreements over the color of the carpet or, or you know, whether or not we should uh, uh, put in a new parking lot or new sidewalks or whatever the things may be. This church isn't, doesn't get into really wrapped up into those petty arguments. Believe me, I've been in churches where you do. For instance, the carpet. I'll tell you as quick, we consumed so much energy and time for six months in my first church over the carpet. And they had a red carpet, and people hated that red carpet. They wanted a color more like, I, I remember this color was one that we looked at. So we had all the carpet, you know, people come out. We had all the different samples and everything. Guess what carpet after six months we chose? The red carpet. Because, because it was the carpet that meant the least amount of change. It was the carpet we had always had. And so we figured if people had lived with it this long, they would live with it again. You see how we get so deflected? How much, how much of our time did we spend in that same amount of time talking about how we can bring neighbors to Jesus Christ? Or how we can send out mission teams for Jesus Christ. Not much. But boy, the carpet was important. So I think if we want to be a simple church, if we want to be simply church, the key is to discover our master Jesus Christ again. They say, Lord, we hand it all over to you. It's a tough message. It's a tough gospel. You know, I don't preach nearly as hard as Jesus preaches. Nearly as hard. I don't talk a lot about hell. It, it, scares, it scares me. 
part of what scares me is not just my personal fear of hell, but the fear that other people will go out and say, well, he's one of those hellfire and brimstone preachers, and I'm not going to go back to that church anymore, because I hear so many people say, I grew up with a hellfire and brimstone preacher, and I hate church because of it. But I realize that there is a way to preach what Jesus teaches without coming across as hateful or cruel, without coming across as judgmental, but simply preaching what he said and letting it do its work in the spirits of of human beings. And so this morning, you know, we come to the table of our Lord. We come to a place that talks about tough love. We come to a place where the bread represents Jesus' body hanging on that cross for us. We have a cup that represents Jesus shedding his blood for us, and he has given us his all, and he has bled for us. And at the meantime, we're arguing over small stuff. One last illustration of this, because it's a fact, and I know some, some in this sanctuary are going to say, wow, he tells it again. But it was kind of a, a formative mo- moment for me as a pastor in the United Methodist Church. Uh, up to that time, I think I was pretty much trying to, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's and do all the liturgical things according to the patterns and everything that were set aside that have been created over the years uh, in the church that, that you don't necessarily find in the scriptures, but you find in our traditions. And I think many of those things are fine, such as Ash Wednesday. We don't really find that per se in Scripture, but certainly we find a call to repentance in Scripture. So I was trying to do everything by the book, and I had done so well with it that they had asked me to teach this class at, uh, at licensing school. And so I was up at Shenandoah University, and I'm teaching a class on multi-point charge organization and administration, which means for all those licensed pastors who were going to get two or three or four churches, I was going to tell them how to bring that together and how to keep those churches together, and how to administer them. Because I had a three-point charge. So, so they asked me to come and take care of that. And long story short, I was also president of the Licensed Local Pastors Association for the conference. So one night, they, uh, uh, we were supposed to have a meeting where people could ask me questions about being a licensed local pastor. Every day I had noticed people going over to the Cokesbury display that was there at our school and looking at the robes. They spent a lot more time looking at the robes than they did studying for their classes. Robes that cost six, eight hundred dollars and people were just fawning over them and talking about and trying them on and how do I look. And I know they were excited about being a pastor and they were going to get to wear a robe. So one night at a meeting they asked me, uh, someone asked me, uh, What about robes and stoles? Because you see, a licensed pastor shouldn't wear the stole, just the robe. Now, some of the robes now are kind of tricky because they build in something that looks like a stole, so we hadn't quite figured that out. I was an associate at a church by that time, and the senior pastor had told me that I was going to wear the same thing he wore because he didn't want people to see us as Pastor A, Pastor B, pastor up here, pastor down here. He wanted to see equality. So he said, so we'll do the same thing. So he was an ordained elder. I was not. I followed his instructions. And I told, I told the group that. But then I added this. 
uh, you know, I, I used a German word. I said Haustoflin that I had learned down in seminary, which means the house rules. I just followed the rules of the house that I was living in, and there they told me to dress this way, even though it was against the way the United Methodist Church tradition said a licensed local pastor should dress. But then I said, but I'll tell you this, I wish I'd never had to wear a robe. I don't think robes are that important. I don't think what you wear is that important unless you truly love Jesus Christ. I said, I, don't, I, I really don't see why we are so focused on these robes and what we're going to wear at this point. You're about to go and be pastors of churches for the first time. Aren't there more important things that we should attend to? So I took off a little bit like that. Everybody left. The next morning, Beth Downs, who they used to call her the hammer, Beth was in, kind of in charge of ministerial affairs. Beth uh, uh, comes to me and talks to me about what I had said. And she has brought a district superintendent in to speak to the class that day. And so he gets up and says, you know, Bob said this last night, but here's what we teach. Therefore, you know, ignore what Bob said. And I just sat there and at the end I, I said, okay. You've heard it. Let's go on. And we went on. That was the last year I taught. (laughs) The last year I taught at that school. But people would come up to me in the next annual conference and the next one after that. For years, people would come up to me, and I still probably will have somebody this year come up to me and say, I've never been so embarrassed for somebody in my life as I was that morning that the church thought that that was that important that they would bring a district superintendent all the way in to straighten everybody out on that. And I share that to say that was a turning point for me because at that point I said, you know what? I'm going to try to do everything that Jesus calls me to do in this church. And I'm also going to try to push aside the things that have nothing to do with Jesus Christ And the mission that we have, we say our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. It's not to decide how we're going to dress in church. And a lot of you, you don't dress very well for church. I know it. I see it. Some of you, I I, I want to talk to you about it someday. But but anyways, I'm dragging on and we, we want to get to the table again. But you see, sometimes we don't keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing, folks, if we want to keep it focused and simple, is Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. As we depart, may our prayer be that we will all come to that place of endless delight in Jesus Christ, that place where we are truly living in him as a church, as a people, and in our our lives that are, are purchased by Jesus Christ on that cross. May we go in his peace, and amen.